Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, our very first, our inaugural episode. <laughs> the very first of what we hope to be many, I'm sure. Yes, and I'm just really privileged to have a great friend, uh, Greg Howell, that we can uh, do this adventure together. And I just want to take a moment and introduce him to our audience. Greg is a doctoral student just finishing up his uh, Ph.D., work at Regent University. He's been working on the development of Adventist hermeneutics from World War II up to the present. And I am also privileged to have a good friend of mine here, Dr. Michael Campbell, who is a professor of, I want to say theology. Is that how I remember hearing it right? Professor of theology like at that. Southwestern. <laughs> yeah, somewhere, somewhere in there. Southwestern Adventist University has you currently. Um, I have known you through at least, what, two universities now. Uh, the other one over in the Philippines. Um, and I know I'm going to say that one wrong, but I have the acronym A-I-I-A-S. Tell me what that one is again, Michael. Just, just as long as you say it's I-S and not ISIS. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Michael is a uh, distinguished researcher, historian, Adventist scholar uh, who's done a bunch of fantastic work that I've always enjoyed reading on, on the 1919 Bible conferences. Um, and most recently, looking at even some of the surrounding historical context there with the 1919 influenza outbreak uh, and quite a bit of other great stuff. Um, I always know that if I need to look for some obscure uh, Adventist history, I can I can give Michael a call. So super excited to have a podcast with this guy. Uh, he has got a ton of background knowledge to share with us. So it's going to be a good time. Well, the other thing I want to mention really briefly for our audience, uh, Greg is a fellow bibliophile and... <laughs> we first met at the American Society of Church History. We were both giving papers uh, related to Adventist history. So we've had <laughs> yep. a mutual love for uh, this topic for some time. A good long time. And if I remember, I brought a gigantic case of books that you had been just waiting on. You had gotten all this great stuff, had it shipped to me, and then I brought it in a gigantic huge case and and if i don't remember totally you had an empty suitcase you were gonna huck that thing all the way back to the philippines in something like that you got to be creative when you're living overseas and <laughs> need good books right there was a ton of good stuff i remember a couple of great first uh, at least a first edition of one of kellogg's books in there if i remember fun times fun times so <laughs> well let's talk about the podcast i'm i'm just so excited uh greg tell us where we got the name adventist pilgrimage yeah, we, we went through a lot of different iterations on this thing, uh, if I remember did. right. We, we, we tried out lots of things. We even threw up a Facebook uh, a quiz to see who thought what was the best. We landed on Adventist Pilgrimage pretty much because we knew we needed to have um, the, the Adventist name in there, obviously. And we also felt like history of Adventism has not just been a... A, a linear process of like here this happened in 1865 and then it happened again in 1892 and da, da. like this is not just recounting the old stodgy history stuff out of books what it really feels like is being part of a long and drawn out pilgrimage um, you and I are, have been in this church for a long time uh, we've been on our own personal you know Adventist pilgrimages but in general, um, the Adventist Church itself has been on a journey from its earliest inceptions in the 1840s to the present day. So we just felt like 
opening that up and kind of attaching it to uh, the the historical uh, journey of true believers making these pilgrimages to the the special sites and the special events in their history just kind of fit what we wanted to do with the podcast. Well, I love that, Greg, because you know it just brings out the complexity of our Adventist past. How yeah. there's just so much richness and and one of the areas that's kind of a little bit weak, I feel, in our Adventist historiography is looking at the wider context of what's going on around. And I think that's part of what we want to do is, is place that pilgrimage, that path. So, so people can kind of see those twists and contours and how we've interpreted certain things in certain ways. And sometimes maybe we've not interpreted or chosen to ignore certain things. So looking at those documents and ephemera and different kinds of things that uh, help bring new insight into the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and as you were saying that, I was even thinking like I want I want to be able to give viewers, uh, listeners. We're gonna possibly do a little bit of both here. I wanted to give people a chance to see some of the high points in in our church's history, uh, but to see it from the perspectives that have been opening up to us more and more in the last couple of decades. The the powerful uh, background info and and extra details that we've been able to uncover in Adventist history doesn't usually get out there. And so I felt like, yeah, we, we need to, to show up these major waypoints in our church history, but we need to show it in, in all of its complexity. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of cool about this podcast is, is we're, we're intentionally starting from the beginning saying, here is history, but here is nuance as well. And I think that's one of the cool things that we're going to be trying to do on this thing. Well, in addition to new discoveries, we have the Dean of Adventist Historians, for our very first episode. I am so stoked. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, George's interview here was one of the great moments, honestly, that I've had in, in my own research and experience here lately. Um, I know for you, George, and you have uh, had a long history as student and professor. Um, I got to take his very last class that he taught at the Adventist Seminary back there at Andrews. Uh, it was a summer course. It was quick, uh, but it was his classic one on the development of Adventist theology. And I really felt fortunate to kind of see, you know, the, the final moment. Um, but I can also remember in the class, he said, well, I'm only here because they told me that to get my full retirement, I had to do one more class. So here I am. <laughs> and that, that sounds that, like Dr. Knight. <laughs> it does, right? Exactly. So uh, as, as much as he was candid and open with himself, I felt like he was also candid and open with the Adventist history and everything that the richness it comes from. So I'm excited to share this with everybody. And uh, yeah, we should just maybe get right on to this interview. Well, we just want to invite you to, to listen with us now uh, with our conversation with uh, George Knight. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Well, thanks again, Dr. Knight, for coming and joining us on the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. It's our first episode, actually, so you get to kind of start us off in uh, whatever directions this kind of thing takes us. Um, no, it's a privilege to be the first. Yeah. We're kind of excited to have you Definitely. on here and kind of excited to get this kind of a thing started, so... 
Um, we kind of wanted to look, since you are one of the senior statesmen in Adventist history these days, um, we wanted to kind of know what made you initially become interested in pursuing Adventist history um, from both the writing and the academic side. Um, what what really drove you towards that? Because I know you started out in education first. Well, what if I told you I didn't have any interest? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a great place to right? start. Why not? Uh I had a tremendous interest in history, but Adventist history never really fascinated me. Uh, to tell you the truth, uh, I never had a course in Adventist history. Uh, I had a course called Studies in Adventist History, but the guy was a seminary professor that uh, should have been fired years before. <laughs> wandered in two weeks late. And then uh, every day he'd come in about halfway through the class while we were all sitting there, tell a joke, mumble a few times, and walk out. He was let go at the end of the year. Wow. As far as I can recall, the, in fact, church history was not my thing. Uh, I had a good undergraduate experience in church history, and I had a, a minor in history. But uh, Andrews, when I went there, uh, the seminary had, I think, 12 professors. Two of them were church historians. And neither one of them uh, were good communicators. But one of them stayed and later became my colleague. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, and the field was basically, it was there, but uh, I didn't really have any interest in it. And uh, as some people know, I um, didn't have a completely straight track. I started out as a convert in 1961, uh, went through a little crisis in uh, last generation theology, left the ministry in 1969, and decided I wanted to get a PhD in history. But it was the height of affirmative action, and white males were not being employed. So I decided <laughs> I better do something practical. So I decided I would get a degree in the, uh, it's actually a, a unit, a unified field, philosophy and history of education. And my real love was philosophy. And uh, so in 1975, I had finished my degree and uh, got a call to Andrews University in 19, well, 1976, I finished my degree. Two weeks later, I was teaching at Andrews University and I taught both the courses in the history of uh, education, both the uh, general uh, and uh, Adventist, which there was no textbooks. I had to practically invent the field. And uh, the philosophy of Adventist education and the general philosophy of education. Uh, and I, my first few books were in that field. Um, that is in the philosophy. But I began to get Ph.D. students and we didn't have enough depth at Andrews University to do doctoral dissertations uh, with philosophy. So I uh, began to chair uh, my, my students, all did their work in the history, most of them in the history of Adventist education. And the easiest way to get at a topic, since the field has was almost totally undeveloped, uh, was through uh, biographies, because uh, that's one way that uh, 
documentation is stored. And so in a field in which uh, you don't have really too much shape to anything, if you can identify the major people, anyway, people like Gil Valentine, Alan Lindsay, uh, began to work on Prescott and uh, Goodloe Harper Bell. And and uh, we did uh, five or six of those. And so my doctoral students started to do dissertations in the history of Adventist education, largely along biological lines. And uh, naturally, uh, that put me deep into the, the study, both in the uh, secondary sources, which weren't massive of Adventist history, that is the reputable ones weren't massive, and then into the primary sources. And so uh, my students actually got me involved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a good journey. Hmm. And I went, you know, I'm, I'm working in the archives. In fact, I still remember Gil Valentine and myself. Uh, he was one of my first two students. Um, we went to the General Conference Archives in the White Estate together, and we worked through the I was working on myths and Adventism, and he was working on W.W. W. Prescott. And uh, uh, I would say the first few students were teaching me as much as I was teaching them in terms of the thing. In other words, it was a collegial relationship. Mm. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, I figured, you know, I better get involved in the context of all this stuff. So I started reading on the side uh, uh, quite extensively um, in uh, the history of American religion um, and uh, similar topics. Uh, and, and of course, my interest began to just blossom at that point. Uh, eight years after, eight years, or actually nine years, but it was eight years when I came to the conclusion uh, that uh, I really was not as comfortable as I thought I would be in the school of education. Um, I was had the most students because I was teaching required classes that were for the whole university. They could be used as general ed, my philosophy class. Uh, but uh, I was tired of fighting <laughs> my turf, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so basically, and by that, by that time, I was also teaching a, a two-quarter course in historical methodology. So I was pretty mm. into the stuff. Um, but uh, in 1984, sometime, maybe, maybe, maybe it was the fall of 84, I went to see Richard Schwartz, who was the vice president for academic affairs. And I said, look, at, I said, uh, I've had just about enough. I'm going to quit and get a job somewhere else. And he said, have you tried church history? I said, no. I don't know why they'd even have me. I won't even let the chair of the church history department sit on my committees. <laughs> anyway, well, I won't go through the whole story. <laughs> but anyway, I went over there and they were just opening up a PhD program in Adventist studies. And uh, I don't have a definite proof on this, but I had probably chaired more PhD programs in Adventist studies than anybody else in the world at that time, because, you know, I mean, how many, how many people, you know, in a public university find an Adventist is doing a PhD? You know, there's a few here and a few there. Yeah. Like Dick Swartz said, they didn't even know what the Review and Herald was at the University of Michigan. Uh, wow. <laughs> so by this time, I was pretty deep into it. 
And my, my natural uh, interest in history had just led one thing to another. And uh, I'd always been interested in biographical studies because uh, uh, I was started in school before my neural connections had made it and didn't learn to read really until I was in seventh grade and I learned to read biography. And that was a way into whole fields of knowledge for me. And mm-hmm. it did the same thing with education. And it led me, actually, I already had, had a, had, had a um, BA, MA, and BD, which was really a beefed-up MDiv, um, already in, in theology. Yeah, my doctoral degree was not there, but I had read wi- widely by that time. And uh, so I went over there in uh, uh, 1985, summer of 1985, and began to teach church history. Uh, yes, I had to, uh, since I hadn't had any of the courses I was teaching, <laughs> I had to travel. But that was true in the School of Education, too, except there, the two courses I had, Philosophy and Education, which is from up to that time, had basically been a walk to the book education. And the history of Adventist education, there was no structure, there was no form, there was no mm-hmm. literature. Uh, so going to church history was pretty easy. <laughs> Because at least most of the places had some kind of a, you know, some kind of shape to it, with the exception of lifestyle. Nobody, as far as I know, in the history of the world had ever taught Adventist lifestyle. Nobody knew how, including me. So I just did seminars until I got a handle on it. So I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, as you're... By the way, I was well fixed with the uh, the other types of history and philosophy, that is general American and uh, Western, uh, but uh, when it came to specifically Adventist things, you know, I, every every course I taught, I had to invent, and and the courses in the seminary, I just read widely in the history of American religion. Course I taught, history of religious liberty, um, and on and on. So yeah, I can read. So, <laughs> so you're building your own historiography at that yeah. point. That's awesome. Well, actually, it, it really the the uh, the self-starting type of approach uh, really started with my doctoral professor. I remember I went to him, I think at the air, first of my, end of my first year, and I said, "Look at Josh." I said, "What should I study from my comps?" He said, uh, "The library." <laughs> wow! <laughs> so I had to invent. Uh, <laughs> That's daunting. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the kind of guy who was. Not very many of his students graduated, but those of us who did knew what we were yeah. doing. Talk to us a little bit about your early writing, George, as you're starting to kind of work your way into the field, reading widely, developing these classes. Uh, I know a couple of your earliest books, Early Adventist Educators, kind of goes along with your early doctoral students. And then um, I'm especially interested in myths and Adventism, because I, I think that's really the first book that started getting some real traction in the field of Adventist studies that, that you wrote. Uh, am, I, am I correct with that? And, and could you give us a little background to some of your early writing in, in Adventist studies? Yeah. Um, myths and Adventism really started out as myths in Adventist ed- education. But about that time, I was beginning to transition and uh, was counseled to broaden out the topic. And of course, uh, now we're dealing in the crisis era. 
we not only had Walter Array and uh, Ron Numbers and Des Ford and Davenport, and we, you know, we got this big mix. Uh, interestingly enough, I was not out to answer anybody. What I really was trying to do was trying to figure out how in the world to uh, apply, let's say, Ellen White, understand Ellen White's counsel in its own historical context. And what that might mean in what, you know, an almost totally different context in the uh, 20th century. And so in the process, I was not only dealing with education, I was dealing with a whole lot of uh, lifestyle issues, recreation, literature, media, uh, a whole bunch of stuff when I developed this book in, in myths and Adventist, uh, myths and Adventism. So it was a very, very broad based but the chapter that kicked the thing off is uh, the myth of the inflexible prophet. That mm. one, pay dirt. That one is the book that made it explosive. That's the one where people said, wow, maybe there's something to believe after all. <laughs> Before that, uh, Ellen White, you know, he just kind of collected quotations. And if he had five pounds of quotations over here and only three pounds over here, five pounds one. Uh, but nobody it's went and looked at the different contexts and see that Ellen White could say diametrically opposed things because she was dealing with different contexts. And that basically she was a pragmatist that would bend and flow with what needed to be done. And uh, so as I got into this, and, and I did this really as an extension of my educational philosophy work from a historical perspective first. But it bled right into what I would start doing in the seminary. And uh, you might say in that first chapter, I began to develop a hermeneutic, a more sophisticated hermeneutic for understanding Ellen White. And it was just at the time that a more complex understanding was needed because the flat land or the, you know, every Ellen White quotation, just pick them out. They all got the same context type of thing uh, was no longer holding up. So now we're looking at a more complex field and it just so happens I arrived at the right time at the right spot with a message that uh, the church needed. Hmm. In fact, that book had no longer come out. And I had a call from Robert Olson, the director of the White Estate, basically asking me if I would come to the, uh, at that time, Silver no, well, it wasn't Silver Springs, it was whatever it was before that, Tacoma Park, uh, the, the General Conference headquarters. Yeah. And uh, I told him I didn't think that was uh, what I should be doing at that particular time. Now, yeah, and, and by that time, I had just made the transition to church history. You see, that book came out at the same time that I was making the transition. Mm. A rather touchy thing because uh, uh, I had a complex hermeneutics and the theological seminary was going through a conflict over hermeneutics. Uh, and uh, methodology is what it got a lot of people fired. <laughs> and so I arrived at the... At, at the with the wrong message, but anyway, I looked like I was orthodox, which I I'm a, I do believe, but I'm not always following uh, 
administrative party lines. And that, that party line there was the seminary uh, administration. Yeah, you know, and that and that leads me to kind of ask one of our questions uh, that we had on our list. Obviously, you've had a, a long history, you know, with the GC, the White Estate, and and and, and I'm sure there's been plenty of back and forth there. Um, you've always seemed or had the the reputation as being somebody who remained loyal to the church. How do you think your historiographical contributions have differed from, say, you know, a Ron Numbers? Um, how did you find the balance between being historically honest but retaining constructive, critical uh, view towards the denomination? Well, it's several factors. One thing you must recognize is that I'm a second-generation revisionist. Hmm. Uh, I've said it, and other people have said it, without Ron Numbers, there'd been no George Knight. Um, um, A second-generation revisionist has the advantage of perspective. Where did these people come from? What did they react against? And did they overreact? Uh, that That's part of it. Uh, another part of it was Ron was raised Adventist. Mm. He was a true believer from everything I understand about Ellen White. Um, and uh, then he found out that uh, maybe some of it wasn't what he'd been told. <laughs> and he reacted. Uh, and maybe I would have reacted in the same way if I'd come up with my generation with Ellen White, the hatchet woman. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I never came up that way. I came up, met Adventism when I was 19, met Ellen White when I was 19, Kind of liked the old lady, but I never had her used against me. Um, and uh, I, I did get to the because I became a perfectionist. I did use it against other people, but I never had <laughs> it against me. And my <laughs> was Christianity. Uh, when I left the ministry in 1969, I was baptized in 61. When I left the ministry in 1969. The enemy was not Adventism per se. It was Christianity. Uh, I I believe that that Adventism was the closest thing to Scripture that I could find. I'd always believed that. But I also felt that I'd been sold a bill of goods. And so I didn't have any big hang-up with Ellen White. I didn't have any big hang-up necessarily with Adventism. I was getting out of Christianity. I was finished. Hmm. Uh, And... uh, And when I actually, uh, I, got, I got into revolutionary philosophies, late 60s, early 70s, great time for revolutionary philosophies. I was in the Marx and everything. My own dissertation is on social reconstructionism, which is the philosophies of revolution. Mm. And I was ready to start the revolution. And one day I'm sitting there, 1975. I'm sitting there and I said, man, alive, these are wonderful theories. Everybody puts in what they can, takes out what they need. How come none of them work? They've been here for thousands of years. And it came to my head, man, they got a weak anthropology, no concept of sin. That's why none of these revolutionary philosophies work. And ding, that was the first step of a series of events that led me back to Christianity. And once I got back to Christianity, because I'd already tried philosophy 
to find the answer. It didn't hold any answers. I tried Eastern religion. They didn't hold any answers. And so Christianity, when it, you know, it, it locked into place for me. I already, did- I already had a good hold of Adventism. And so it was just natural for me uh, to say, ah, my Adventism got baptized. No, it was a real question my answering. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. You're You're already telling us like, there's there's something in Adventism and in Christianity that brings you back through this sense of of uh, the yeah, sinful I, nature. But I had uh, I had no intention of teaching in an Adventist institute at university. Hmm. Uh, I I wrote to Colorado and a couple other conferences, and I went to a two teacher school in the mountains. I had to cover up my three ac- three graduate degrees, <laughs> <laughs> but through a series of events, not uh, not by my. Uh, Calculations. Um, uh, I had an invitation uh, December of uh, '75 uh, to meet with uh, Richard Hamill at Andrews University, and I accepted a position there and started teaching there in '76. Um, and uh, anyway, nice. What so, was your question? Did I answer? Uh, it? I know what yeah, you know. You did. I said, what, what made you different than, than numbers? Oh, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't have this Ellen White thing. Yeah. And you got to recognize, you guys were raised in a different generation. Now, Michael's got an interesting background, but the generation that I was in college with had had Ellen White hammered, and they were anxious to get rid of her. <laughs> yeah. so the news was that Ronald Numbers and Walter Ray – who'd both been very, very staunch Illinois believers, when they threw her overboard, our whole generation, oh, man, we're free at last. I never <laughs> had that feeling. Uh, but I did have the feeling is, how do you understand this stuff? How do you apply this stuff? I never sought to answer uh, Walter Ray or Ron Numbers. I just tried to say, man, I'm alive. I'm trying to teach some of this stuff. How in the world do you make sense out of it? And so I, I began to contextualize. I began to develop a hermeneutic, but I didn't react against it. And I think this this background, uh, so a second generation, I had a perspective uh, on where Ron Numbers and Walter Ray had gone. And it looked to me like they reacted. And if you're in a really tight situation and you react, the harder you're pushed, the harder you're going to push back. And I felt that, you know, they'd probably gone too far. Yeah. The situation, and since then, of course, uh, if you're familiar with my afterlife, book Ellen White's Afterlife, uh, you can see that uh, it's a very complex situation. <laughs> uh, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I read uh, a, a chapter today out of the manuscript that Denny Fortin is developing on G.I. Butler. And I'm developing new ideas of the nuances of what Ellen White was talking about and how know what she meant uh anyway this this dynamic is still taking place as you try to understand a very talented woman but a very very complex woman who had a relationship with the leadership of the church that we're just now beginning to understand so george i want to pick up a little bit because you know that methodology and and some of those differences you brought your own that second uh, wave of revisionism of, of uh, within Adventist historiography. 
one of the things I think is very, to me, is very interesting uh, from knowing you over the years has been a sense of loyalty to the church. You've, you've been sort of the denomination's historian, and you've been able to interact with a number of general conference presidents as well as white estate leaders. You mentioned Bob Olson. Um, I'm kind of curious to... Catch you on oh, okay. one point, though. When you're a denominational historian, it sounds like I went. No, <laughs> never, never <laughs> thought that about you. <laughs> I, I have always said what I That's believe. That's true. I, I, I don't dispute that. <laughs> I, I'm a denomination, but I'm not an animal of the General Conference or the Pacific Union or Andrews University. I had a job before yes. I went there. I never worried about the consequences. I said, I'm not one of those guys that waited until he retired before he opened his mouth. I've had my mouth open from the beginning, and I made more money working elsewhere than I have for the church. So it's <laughs> no, you know, I just want to clarify that. That's a, that's a, that's a vocabulary sure, thing. I, I appreciate yeah. that. That's, that's well said. And <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> and appreciate that. But tried to paint me as, uh, as the uh, denominational animal. Uh, that uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna justify whatever what the people are gonna do. I, that's that's what uh, Wheeland Wheeland yeah. short uh, the 1880s. Yeah. You know, oh, now the denomination's got a new guy. You know, he's gonna toe the party gonna, line or something. You know, yeah, yeah, he's gonna toe the party line and make it. Respectable. Well, tell us. And I'm kind of thinking about. I, I I seem to recall a story about uh, eight, back in the days with the whole. Since you mentioned Wheeland and short 1888. You were going around and doing a lot of research, a lot of speaking appointments, and there was something about, I think, Neil Wilson were at an annual council that I'm recalling. These are the kind of vignettes that I'm kind of uh, curious uh, to, to elucidate here. Well, uh, the myths and Adventism kind of, you know, put me on the map uh, and, and came at the right time at the right mm -hmm. place. I'd say after that, some of my historical work followed the calendar. Okay, if I go to seminary in 85, what is the next big event in Adventist history? Yeah, centennial. No? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'm hung up on biography because I think it's a great way to get into any right. field. And so um, I... Um, I decided to write a biography of A.T. Jones, uh, which is truly a complex but very fascinating character. And uh, I started that, I think, in 85, uh, published in late 87 for the year 88, the centennial. And uh, that actually put me on the map in a different sort of way. January of that year, Neil Wilson asked me to come to Loma Linda University. I'd never met Neil Wilson. Uh, I'd never, I didn't even know a union conference president. <laughs> and uh, so he says, I want you to come meet with church leadership at Loma Linda. Yeah, man, you know, for a guy that never met any church leadership in his life, outside of maybe a conference president, uh, and I walk into this room, and I got a very long boardroom now. And back in those days, the North American division was more central to the church, okay? So here's the uh, union presidents of North America. Here's Brad uh, uh, Bradford. 
the president of North American Division, and of course the secretary of the division and the general car. They're all there, all these big guys. And, and they asked me to come in and talk to them about 1888 because I'd written the book. Well, first thing I know it, man, my name's all over the place, and I'm going to speak at the the, the uh, in November, whatever it was, later, at Minneapolis. But meanwhile, I had been invited to go to the 1988 Annual Council in Nairobi, Kenya. Jan Paulson and uh, Calvin Rock were to do the theological studies. They'd take every other day, and they gave me an hour a day to do the historical studies. Out of that came the book Angry Saints. And so um, I'm... uh, you know, I mean, this is, I'm a new kid on the block. I don't know anything. I don't know how to keep my mouth shut. And uh, here's Neil Wilson sitting right in front of me. And right next to him is uh, Bradford, president of North American Division. And uh, I did one of the studies I gave was on personalities. And so um, as I was studying, I got I began to think, man, alive. This guy Butler is general conference president. He, he reminds me an awful lot of Neil. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to work Butler over. He was <laughs> one of four personalities I dealt with that hour. And so I used all the very strong quotations from Ellen White and others about Butler's uh, administrative techniques, except the one quotation where Ellen White says, uh, Elder, Elder Butler has been in office about three years too long and thinks his word is infallible. Now that's in the book, but it wasn't in, I kept it out of the lecture because the whole audience would have broke loose. Uh, and anyway, so I uh, really worked Elder Butler over, Neil sitting right in front of me. So after that, we you know, went to the lunch line. Maybe we had a couple other meetings in between. And I'm standing in the lunch line, and Neil Wilson comes up to me. He puts his arm on my shoulder, and he looks me in the eyes. Now, Neil Wilson had very (laughs) penetrating eyes. And he looked at me, and he said, I want you to quit talking about me. (laughs) And then he smiled. (laughs) And then he smiled. And, uh, you know, I've used that as an illustration that we can use church history to say things that we can't say out loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can say them out loud. We just can't put them straight forward. <laughs> the use of Adventist history that took place at the, in the annual council of the general conference and the, uh, the good brother who was very perceptive. Neil was a very talented man. Uh, he understood what I was doing. And, uh, we were good friends anyway. These guys, I've had a good relationship, uh, well, with most of the general conference presidents the last four or five. I will say most. Let's just leave it at there for now. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they always knew that uh, I would say what I thought. Uh, I remember I got in uh, late 
couple of days late to the annual council in 98 at Iguazu Falls in Brazil. And I got there at lunchtime. And Bob Falkenberg saw me come in and he waved me over and he sat down with me. He says, I got to talk to you. So we talked for a while. And then I said, you know, Bob, there's a, a real problem with the local churches. Uh, having discretionary funds. I said, he said, oh, no, no, we do it. I said, look at, they're all earmarked and you know it. I said, uh, he says, I listen to the church. I said, Bob, you listen, but you don't hear. Uh, I've had that kind of a relationship with most of the general conference presidents. (laughs) (laughs) But they knew that number one, I was faithful to scripture. I knew, I understood I suppose, as well as anybody, Ellen White and her ministry was faithful, understood to what I understood, and was uh, was in harmony with the position of the church doctrinally. Yeah. Uh, so they knew that I could be trusted, but I was kind of the, uh, the inside, uh, what do you call it, provocateur? Agitator? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it wasn't agitation for agitation. Whenever I saw anything uh, that uh, needed to be done, I did. When I was principal, I still remember I was down principal of the school down in Texas when the Mary uh, Mary Kay case went through, and they were going to lower all the male teachers' pay uh, in order to cover that, but they weren't going to tell the male teachers until after the school year began. <laughs> wow. I formed an Adventist labor union. there's so many ways we could go with that indeed (laughs) i brought that illustration out with the north american division when they called me down to florida at the hospital there and there were the nurses who run the unionize and i'd be you know telling the historical issues and then (laughs) my own issue and said look if you don't want people to unionize you just make sure you treat them better and they're yeah. getting from the union. You'll never have to worry. They don't feel like they need protection. They won't try. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. You know, I, I like what you said there about just uh, being a historian that that still is able to critique the, the present tense as much as the past tense. Um, I, I remember you even, uh, one of our emails back and forth, I, I think I had a similar question and, and you said, you know, I... Uh, you, you said you thought that the the church never felt like you were trying to sink the ship when you wrote, you know, things that were critical or were, you know, just uh, maybe harder to hear for some people. Uh, you yeah. felt like that made a difference. The, 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 I think I'm from, we were talking privately that I told you about the talk. Uh, if I were the devil, did I say this on the air? Or on the mm. I think I, I remember, yeah. Uh, at the 2000 GC, uh, very revealing thing took place. Um, about five days before the general conference session began, actually it was about a week, I got a call from Phil Follett, vice president of general conference. He said, look at all the vice presidents have met and we have five extra slots for the Toronto GC. And they're going to be, uh, I can't remember, right in the middle of the day. And if we don't get this thing started lively, everybody will fall asleep the first day and they won't come back. They said, we need you to present something the first day. 
Well, that was a pretty, you know, pretty threatening order. I mean, not order, invitation, which I obviously took. Uh, and uh, I came up with the theme, if I were the devil, what would I do to the church? And uh, I said some things in there that kind of scared me. <laughs> I'm really not a confrontational person. I'm really a, uh, believe it or not, I like to sit on the back row and keep my mouth shut. But I <laughs> never ended up for a lot of years now in that position. Anyway, I, I got kind of worried about it. And uh, I, uh, I, I decided to take a copy of the talk, the Phil Follett's room, the night before I was supposed to give it. I said, Phil, I said, uh, you better take a look at this thing. I'm a little worried about some of the stuff I'm going to say. And he says, I'm not going to look at it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a million miles away from where we are now at, the, at, uh, at 2020, I'll tell you, 2021. Uh, but Phil said, no, no, I'm not going to take a look at it. I said, uh, he said, uh, those of us in the presidential circle, meaning the GC presidential circle, do not like what you say, but we know you're right. That was a pretty big statement. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, you know, that's just one of those things. And, and of course, when I gave the talk, if I were the devil, it was probably the most famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it, well-known immediately talks that I ever gave. Um, and, uh, and of course, everybody wanted me to write a book on the topic right away, and I never did. I wrote a book, I later published a book with that title, but that's only because it was the lead essay. I never did fill it out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that just belies a level of trust, you know, that I hear coming from leadership is we're willing to let you say stuff that we don't like. Well, but... you know, I'd just like to make a comment now. I wonder how that would work in 2022 at the general conference session. I would love to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're not going to go there, but I, I mean, <laughs> that uh, we have the same atmosphere now. But I've yeah. had a very good relationship. In fact, uh, one of my more interesting relationships with General Conference Presidents was 1990, the only time I've actually served as a delegate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, about two months before the session, um, Neil Wilson's political advisor phoned me up. He had a priest, which is uh, Richard Lesher. <laughs> His political advisor was uh, uh, Bob Falkenberg, and these two men could get a hold of Neil anytime. Uh, it's no accident that uh, Lesher was uh, chair of the nominating committee in 85, and Bob was chair of the nominating committee in 90. Mm. Uh, I don't want to say that these things are ever manipulated, but, you know, it does kind of, you know, it's make a nice historical study. Let's put it that way. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> a nominating committee in a general conference session. Now, there's a book for you. Uh, anyway, so Bob phones me up and he says, look, I, I got this uh, letter I've written for Neil Wilson, a speech that uh, I think he ought to give the first night. I'm going to send it to you. I want you to revise it any way you want. Then I want you to send it on to Elder Wilson with a letter that says, look, if you do what's in this speech, 
you've got a great future. <laughs> I don't know what I said. I got the letter somewhere, but I don't know what I said, but that's what Bob wanted me to do. And I said, sure, I did it. And so I, I got the letter, Bob's speech, and I changed it here and changed it there. And I sent a nice letter to uh, to Neil Wilson about the, the, the past and how things could work better in the future. And uh, Neil never gave it the first night. Hmm. Bob was president the second night. <laughs> but, hey, he was an impressive-looking fellow, what, about 6'5 or something like that? And he's standing in front of the nominating committee, and they first asked George Brown, hmm. uh, president of America, would have been the first uh, uh, man with uh, African-American, uh, African blood. Um, and uh, But Brown couldn't take it. And I got a story there, too. Uh, hmm. For 1989, I was one of the graduation speakers at Andrews, and uh, George Brown and uh, uh, the guy that's uh, Car Carson, Ben Carson, and George Brown and myself, we were the three speakers. And uh, anyway, George Brown and his wife were sitting there on the sofa while we're waiting for lunch, and I said, well, Elder Brown, are you going to run for division president again? Uh, at this next general conference session. This is 89. And uh, he looked at me and said, well, Neil can do it. I can do it. And his wife gave him the elbow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a very, very clear message to me. Old man, get out of this business while you got a chance. <laughs> so George Brown uh, is nominated to be president and Mrs. Brown apparently is in the background <laughs> in his thinking. And they work out apparently an agreement that, uh, you know, I don't know how formal this is. But anyway, uh, he, he was allowed to stay on two more years as division president or so. <laughs> so who's left? This big looking guy right in the front. Uh, you know, he'd been offered a union conference president, see, three times uh, by Neil. He wouldn't take it. He said, I want to come through at a general conference session. The day, the few days before the session, Neil called him in and said, look, we have to cut a budget. It's going to be yours. You'll have to remain as president of the North Carolina, of the, of the Carolina conference. And so Bob uh, went there, realizing he was not going to be get, become a union president. And for the first time, probably since early, early decades of the church, Local conference president becomes president of the general conference. Wow. <clears throat> huh. But, you know, he'd, he'd had some exposure. Yeah. Exposure uh, by Neil over time. And the last time I saw Neil, since we're talking about general conference, I could tell some other stories, but there's living persons that I get implicated in some of these things. <laughs> that is uh, the hardest part of history is thinking who's still alive that I can't say anything about. <laughs> 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 Don't read between the lines. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's reasons Neil Wonder Bob kept out. Partly, yeah. partly was age. You figure it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the last time I see Neil, it's in the general conference building. He's still in an office downstairs, and we had a good talk. And uh, I could tell you several of this points of conversation, but I'll do it with a 10 years from now. Uh, anyway, final words. I'm walking out. Neil looks at me and he said, Bob Gossett hasn't got his yet. In other words, he's going to 
get it. Now, me and Nilsson and I, neither one of us, knew what the next few months would hold. Uh, about four months later, I'm down in Australia. I'm lecturing with the division president, and suddenly he's called out. All the division presidents in the world are to report immediately. You know, that's only happened one time in the history of Adventism. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it was not good for Bob. And he was no longer going to be president. But I, mm. I take that in the context of Neil's final remarks. He never, ever really forgave Bob uh, for becoming president in 1990. Mm. Wow. So anyway, many, these guys, so <laughs> you know. Here I was, an innocent witness. <laughs> I am in terms of Adventist history. I've been teaching philosophy of education. You know, three years later, I'm talking to these guys. And, uh, and I still remember what I said when I was sitting around that table in Loma Linda the first time I was brought into the administrative councils of the church. I should say the meetings of administrators. That's totally different than administrative councils. I mean, these mm. guys are like I'm not even there, which is very informative for a church, church historian. <laughs> <laughs> and how much do we factor? <laughs> I said something about, uh, I don't know how it is that a humble little monk like me got in here with all you <laughs> cardinals of the church. <laughs> anyway, I always, I always, you know, I always smile and, you know, have a good time. And, and they know that I'm not, I only want the best for the church. And that's true. I yeah. really have always wanted the best for the church. And unlike some people, I do not want political office or power. I was an administrator of a school for five years. That was enough. Uh, <laughs> when I went to Andrews, I tried to avoid every possible administrative job, even department chair, I let one of my students take that, and he was my boss. That was Jerry Moon. Nice. Photography, <laughs> too, really white. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you're talking about it that way. I, I can totally, on a personal level, concur. Administrative uh, life does not appeal in a lot of ways. As a historian looking back, what do you what do you see as the greatest progress we've made in Adventist historiography? And what do you think are some of the greatest challenges we've got um, from going from now on? Okay, I, I think when, when we first began the doctoral program in Adventist studies, we really, the amount of Adventist history out there was not massive. A lot of it was, uh, the biographies tended to be ha hagiography. Major exception was uh, Richard Schwartz on uh, John Harvey Kellogg. Um, uh, uh, hagiography, apologetics, we think of Froome there. Uh, mm -hmm. Froome did a lot of good work, but he made it sure, he always made it sure it came out right, whether the facts lined up with it or not. And that's most obvious in his worst book, Movement of Destiny. Mm -hmm. uh, Froome had an agenda. And the facts lined up with the agenda. 
probably the best history book we had at the time was F.D. Nickel, uh, Midnight Cry, uh, which really brought uh, was widely recognized. But Nickel, once again, was an apologist, and he was smart enough for his goals not to carry the Millerite movement past 1844, because he mm. was there were no fanatics out there. Well, 1845, they're all over the place, and we're mixed up with them. <laughs> I wrote yeah. the, uh, Centennial History. I wrote the Sesquicentennial History, and uh, I carried it all the way through. And uh, you got to tell the whole story. But in terms of just playing good history, up until the disappointment, he did a he did a good job. That was probably some of the best history that we had. And when I when we first started the program, of course, we had people like Ron Numbers who were coming at it from a different direction, informed Adventists who had really done their homework and realized that we'd been wrong and claiming a lot of stuff that was wrong. Uh, and so you begin to get uh, academic, respectable academics. Uh, who are writing respectable books. Uh, even if it's a reaction, he did a good job in what he set out to do. Yeah. Very, very much demonstrated that Ellen White was a child of her times and that uh, she did borrow. And, of course, Walter Ray comes along. He's anything but a respectable historian, uh, but he really helped Others, including Neil Wilson, realized the depth of the problem. And, of course, uh, by that time, uh, McAdams, Don McAdams, uh, had also uh, worked on the topic. He's actually the pioneer. Ron Numbers uh, came a little bit later and then Ray later yet. But we had this three-punch three hit all in the same decade. Uh, and it's the decade after that, that that I come into the picture after things are the worm can has opened up. Yeah, and 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 it hasn't been the same since. I mean, even my own research. <laughs> I mean, we do we did have two denominational histories, Spaldings, which was really a lay history, um, but um, um, I, I've looked at a lot of Spaldings literature, and he's probably you know. He, he, he captured a lot of stuff. Spalding's work is, is, is got a lot to say for it. But I remember reading all the struggles he's having. Oh, I interviewed this person. They want to make sure that Uncle Charlie's in there and Aunt Mary's in there. And he's having all these problems uh, because he's, you know, it's so much of the later stuff is based upon oral history because the archives were not in place. In other words, an archive, um, you know, Adventist history had to be written under the Biden state vaults. Hmm. And, and they weren't as organized either, particularly before Tim Poirier. Um, now, the previous history by Emmy Olson um, was probably a more academic, but then Olson was an academic. He had one of the first two PhDs in the history of the, of the denomination, and he got fired because of it. Michael, 1920s. <laughs> yeah. If you got a PhD, you were in trouble. And so... He, he, he lost his academic position, and the Fireside Correspondence School picked him up so he would have a job. 
there was a guy over there, I can't remember his name right now, but the director, he he, he wanted to pull this academic in so we didn't lose him, son of the uh, general conference president. And uh, it's Wally's with the Fireside uh, Correspondence School, now Griggs University, that uh, he wrote uh, his history of Seventh-day Adventism. And uh, so, you know, the, the literature in the field was not strong let's say, when we started the Adventist Studies program. And so what you've got to do, it seems to me, is you've got to develop structure. Okay? And structure can be developed along several lines. You know me, I already have a, a, biographical, a biographical bias for seeing how things interrelate. And uh, I'm getting more excited now. I'm doing volume 14 of the biography series, and I'm realizing that patterns are beginning to show up on how people relate, administrative weaknesses, how they dialogue with Ellen White. And there's patterns there that don't show up when you look at one biography at a time. But you've got to lay the base work. And so that's... Uh, uh, one reason uh, that I uh, began to uh, try to apply structure to this. Now, other things were being done. Don takes uh, the history of the uh, Millerite movement and how that became Sabbatarian Adventism. There was a few uh, PhD studies that were beginning to come in. Uh, but uh, I tend to think that people remember things better if they're if they can see structure now structure is not built into history but there are patterns there and there are you know what might be called general turning points i think the michael 1920s i've told, told you from the beginning 1920s is a is a, a turning decade 1950s is a turning decade Eight, 1880s turning decade well 85 to 95 uh, 19, 1840s turning decade the, these these kinds of things and so when i I, I decided that you know, maybe I could provide some of that structure just because theoretically I had time. In other words, I was being paid by the, by the denomination with a reduced level of teaching. And uh, in fact, when I first went to the seminar, I was only one of the two or three professors that had to leave every year, mainly because I, I could, I could write and I'd already proven it. Um, um, but uh, so I began to take a look at the eras in uh, Adventist development, uh, the, Miller, the formative period, obviously, the Millerite period, the period of doctrinal development, lifestyle development, you know, uh, you know the, the, the Reformation of 88 and then reorganization. You know, I, I, I think in terms of emphases, and it's pretty clear that, that – uh, that these tended to follow one after the other. And then I took a look, same thing, at the history of our organization uh, and the history of our theology and the search for identity. And uh, and I've done, the, I've done the same thing with education. It's not the only pattern that could be there, but it's, it's some structure to begin with. How, how do you begin to get into a field which doesn't have much structure and hasn't had a whole lot of uh, really solid historical research. Now, somewhere back in about 90, I went to the Review and Herald, and uh, they gave they authorized me to write an eight-volume history of the church, uh, about 600 pages per volume. 
Oh, it's good. I had most of it, the first three or four volumes, I had pretty well outlined. But I figured it would have taken the rest of my life and nobody would have read it. (laughs) So I said, the way I'm going to get at this thing is I'm going to write a little book. Uh, The the second title, not the first title, but the second title was A Brief History of Adventism. That's the one I wanted in the beginning. Um, And uh, then uh, I decided I'm going to write short, brief little books that give an outline, and then, if I got time, fill it in. Not the same thing with Adventist theology, a search for identity, and then also um, with Adventist organization. I think the original title was Organizing to Beat the Devil. Um, and I would have done it for education and uh, several other medical work, several other fields, publishing, but I just got off into other things. Uh, so... And, and meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of, you know, students. <laughs> uh, all my early students are retired, and a lot of them are older than me, uh, which means most of them are dead already. <laughs> but well, now we got Adventist studies coming out of our ears. I mean, next to what we had, we, it was a desert, really. Uh, you you got a person here and a person. I mean, it's no accident that they picked me up. <laughs> My field wasn't even in church history. I mean, there wasn't anybody out there that hadn't angered the church. Hmm. I say Everett Dick tried, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, Everett Dick tried. And he got sidelined and went and became a foremost history of the American, historian of the American frontier. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there were four or five in, in my age class. But each one of them, in one way or the other during this controversial thing when I was basically out of the picture because I'd apostatized. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They all got, they all had PhDs in in American church history, but in one way or another did no longer fit. Yeah. And so this just shows the dearth of the material that they would pick up a guy that had a degree in some totally different field. Uh, (laughs) You know, any other time in the history of the Adventist Church, I wouldn't have fit in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, well, and I would have lived probably happily. I'll come anyway. back to Greg's question though about uh, where would you? I mean, you've. Oh, okay, on this, Michael. Now we have programs yeah. not only at Andrews but in other parts True. of the world, South America, Australia, Great Britain. Uh, we have uh, we have PhDs, and, and of course we have Greg, as you are one, coming from secular universities. It's no yeah. longer a desert out there. And there's a there's a wealth that we did not have thirty to forty years ago, and uh, for that we can be thankful. And we're also to the position where we can do because we have a little more background. You, you can't really write sophisticated what I call second and third level studies until you've got the, the gut work, scut work done. You've got to do the foundational work. Uh, who, who are the main people out there? How did they interact? What do they know? What, what are the dynamics? And just in terms of a lot of it, some of it's just descriptive. Uh, now you've got to always move beyond the descriptive, but. Uh, you got to have the framework to build on. Yeah. Yeah. Framework to build it, and we did not have the framework academically respectable of content uh, 40 years ago, and we've been building on it ever since. 
And now we got a whole lot of builders. Now that we have those builders, I want to come back to great. Now that we have that? those builders, I want to come back to Greg's question about where would you like to see now that there is, you know, there you've watched Adventist historiography build over these decades and seen a number of students over the years, both inside and outside the church. Um, obviously, Adventist historiography has changed. It's grown. It's matured in many ways. Uh, you've watched and been a part of that in so many uh, important ways. Uh, but think for me, I, I'd like to hear you dream a little bit. Where do you see um, some lacuna or lacuna uh, in the future moving forward that you would like to see um, Adventist historians? Maybe there's somebody that's going to be listening to this that uh, will be in the process of pursuing their doctoral studies or uh, pursuing Adventist uh, history in some way into the future. What are the kinds of topics and things moving forward that you would like to see George addressed and looked at uh, with more attention? Well, I suppose one that's close to my heart is the nature of power in mm-hmm. Adventism. And now that can be got at in several different ways. If you take uh, Carol's work on LBJ, massive, four volumes so far, fifth one coming up. It's been a lifetime work. Uh, but basically, if you take a look at his work on LBJ and his earlier work on the guy in New York, it's been on the uses of power. Um, and uh, I uh, I would be very interested in a series of studies on the uses of power and how maybe administrative power uh, is related to prophetic power. I think Gil kind of, uh, Gil Valentine kind of began to fool around with that on this whole business of um, Ellen White and the presidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we seem to think that uh, there's only one spiritual gift out there. Uh, what about, do we have a, do we really believe in the gift of administration? How do the spiritual gifts relate? Um, and I think we have a start on that. But we've never really dealt with the nature of, of power in the conference structure, things like that. I think of a study just finished by uh, Doug Morgan. Excellent, excellent. Uh, change agents. Basically, the story, uh, the most sophisticated study by far of how we develop the regional conferences. But one of the sub-stories there is the power of the laity to create change. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and then, you know, you got the big money power. I can think of one general conference president I worked with that was involved with big money, whether it was cement trucks or cookie money or whatever it was. Uh, you know, you got money power in the Adventist church. I'd like to see an economic history. I've, I've been thinking, well, I thought for several years of writing an economic history of the 1890s of the Adventist Church. Uh, the 1890s, because it's safe. They're all dead. <laughs> uh, but that would be a foundational point on the financial structure of the Adventist Church and uh, what that's meant over time, I still think the 1890s would be a fantastic place. But it's a great 
time of our greatest expansion in terms of in proportionality and the fact that we were bankrupt at the end of the decade. I think we had a dollar and 26 in GC fund and that would have been borrowed. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, e- even the economics of our early decades, uh, it's, it's coming through now clear on the Butler thing. I mean, man, we were running by our shoot la- shoelaces. Uh, th- th- just anyway. Uh, so uh, power, economic studies, um, uh, Adventist concepts of number. I've, I used to teach that uh, the, the problem with Adventism began when we learned how to count. We count everything. <laughs> uh, and if you can't count it, it doesn't count. Now, unfortunately, the most important things in the history of the universe can't be counted. Spirituality, for example. Um so, I mean, even something as pedestrian sounding is the nature of numbers. Not Ron. <laughs> the nature of numbers. For aspiring future historians, what kind of advice would you have um, for, for folks who are trying to, to do good work here, build on what you and others, uh, you know, in, in the previous generations have really given us? What, what, do you, what do you think they need to know going ahead into this stuff? Well, since I'm always publish interested, look look for the holes. Look for the holes. What needs to be done? What needs to be done that's important? What needs to be done that should be done uh, that isn't out there? Or maybe it has a study on it that's wacko. Uh, or or uh, you want to say, okay, that was good, but I think I can refine the picture. But something that is important, if, particularly if you want to write, you're going to have to get somebody to publish it and, you know, uh, and uh, and and I have another bit of advice, and that is when you develop your data banks, think of more than one product you can develop out of the same battery of research. Hmm. That's one reason. That's one way I've been able to be very productive. Um, I've written three books on 1888. <laughs> uh, depends on how you count them, uh, and uh, I, I'm just. I, 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 you know, and I look at other fields that I've written in. Uh, I do my research. I try to do it thoroughly. I have, you know, maybe use one tenth of what I have, uh, and I got other things out there from the beginning. I'm already beginning to visualize different uses for the same, same data banks. Yeah, nice. That's that's like a core element of to build your archive and then start to really like sense what you could make out of that. That's awesome. Take a look at productive historians or writers in other fields, and you'll find that that's their practice. Hmm. Nice. Awesome. Well, hey, Dr. Knight, I want to thank you for joining us today and for just giving us uh, just a tap into uh, the the amount of background and experience that you've had here in the church, but also uh, kind of for really just giving us a sense of your own passion for this, uh, for your church, for your, um, your, your background, and just for what you've put your life's work into. I think that's really been inspiring and great. Well, let me give you one final word. Please do. Church history has been very helpful for me to maintain my faith. Hmm. How so? Well, because if the church is messed up today, guess what? It always has been. (laughs) (laughs) Even the biblical church, if you take a look at biblical history, was messed up. Right. Always in this tension. And and there's there's a dynamic taking place. What I call spiritual gravity is always there. It's always pulling things down. It's always making a mess out of everything. 
And Reformation is not a point in time. It's not something that happened in the 16th century. It's not something that happened in 1888. It's not something that happened in 1950s. It's Reformation is a constant process. And so you have this dialectus, dynamic, taking place all the time. And we're all part of the action. And uh, we need to be very realistic. You know, we take a look at our pioneers. Oh, they had to be perfect, especially the vegetarian Virgin Mary. She had to be perfect. (laughs) She never claimed it. She wasn't. And if you take a look at the facts, you know, she never, you know, she might have been cleaner than some. I have to admit that. But sometimes (laughs) we build our towers too high. They have false bricks in them. And when you pull out a false brick, the whole thing falls. Then we blame it on the prophet. Look it. Yeah, I got Ellen White. Yeah, what's the worst thing that happened? She told a lie? Huh, well, that's pretty serious, huh? Well, how'd you like that, David? (laughs) 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 Or Peter. (laughs) I mean, guys had real problems. Uh, Uh, Contemporaries, uh, another, you know, Joseph Smith might might have had a few things to sell her about. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, we, we tend to want to idealize our history. And we tend to want to idealize the people in that history. I had a historian come up to me some years ago. In fact, I worked with him. And he said, I don't like the way you write history. He said, uh, "He said you tell all the bad things, too. I said, well, what's wrong with that? That's the way the Bible was written. He says, that's the Bible. Uh-huh. <laughs> we can only survive in the future if we're honest about our past. Yeah. If we build a big tower and find that it's false, it's not the past that's the problem. It's us. Mm, And we did Ellen White. That is a fantastic note to to end on, sir. I totally love that, uh, that you're willing to say we can't go anywhere unless we're honest about our past. That's right. That's great. Well, again, thank you so much for all your time here today. You've given them tons of stuff to think about. Um, I know our listeners are going to be just kind of digesting this over some time here. I think it's going to be a great uh, conversation starter for a lot of folks. But again, thank you for all of your time. Nice to be with you, Greg. Michael, too. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.